Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in for another installment of the Bloomberg Intelligence Tech, Tech Disruptors podcast. I'm Jennifer Bartasha, Senior Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, covering the food and retail staples industries. And I am very excited to be speaking today with Ryan Pandia, co-founder and CEO of Perfect Day. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Excellent. So let's start off with, with kind of the, the big thing. So for, for listeners who aren't familiar with your company, can you describe for us your mission and what makes you uniquely positioned to play a disruptive role in how the dairy and food products um, are being produced? Yeah. So Perfect Day is on a mission to create a kinder and greener tomorrow by basically reimagining the way that we make some of the most key parts of our supply chains in food and materials today, starting with dairy. So we're pioneering a technology that you might have heard of called precision fermentation, where we're leveraging fermentation uh, of the sort that you might be familiar with in, in like making beer or wine. But rather than creating a, a sort of full product in a tank, what precision fermentation adds is basically the downstream or, or uh, separations and purification part so that you can use fermentation to then create a single very specific ingredient that adds a ton of value to the food industry, basically. So this has been around for maybe 50, 60 years to make things like enzymes or vitamins or amino acids that you and I might not find terribly interesting, but have mm -hmm. quietly been in our food for half a century. But what's new here and what Perfect Day is really at the forefront of is using that kind of technology to create staple macronutrients that can be made in a lot larger quantities at much larger scales and much lower costs. And so we've started by creating a nature identical milk protein. So the same exact protein that's found in, in cow's milk, it's called whey protein. We've created an animal-free and dramatically more sustainable way to make the exact same protein using fermentation. That's amazing. And can you tell us a little bit about how you came to co-found Perfect Day and, and why you decided to settle on dairy as your main focus? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the story began in 2014, about nine years ago, when my co-founder, Paramal Gandhi, and myself were, uh, like many in, in our generation, we were examining the impact that our own diet was having on the planet, on the environment, on animals, on human systems. And both of us decided to try to cut back on our meat and uh, our animal products consumption, just seeing how much, of, how much impact there was and how much possible to do good there was by simply changing our diet. But we, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have had that journey or had that thought, and it's a lot harder than, um, than it seems. And our experience was that replacing meat in our diet was, you know, maybe a little bit of a challenge, but totally doable from the perspective that you can get a ton of protein and kind of have a full, rich, varied, and pretty delicious diet with existing meat alternatives. Mm -hmm. You know, not only things like the tofus and tempehs of the world, but at the time in 2014, we were beginning to see the explosion of things like Beyond Meat and Impossible. And it looked like there was a ton of innovation and a ton of attention going towards meat alternatives. And then on the other hand, if you looked at dairy, it was like really bespoke formulations of like, you'll have a, a cream cheese alternative that kind of doesn't have the texture or flavor of dairy. It's sort of cardboardy or plasticky. And then when you look at the macronutrients, like all these dairy alternatives were missing protein it kind of felt like they were just kind of carbohydrate or, or like gum-based products, mm -hmm. which from our perspective was a double problem, right? It was like, not only are these products not tasty and not really hitting the spot, they don't cook the same way, they don't behave the same way, but then you're not even getting kind of the real nutrition that dairy brings to the table. 
And so if you imagine like a vegan grilled cheese was like two pieces of bread with more carbohydrate in the middle, you know, it was, yeah. it was so weird. So we kind of looked at it and we're like, why, why is this field so far behind? Uh, why is there no real innovation? It's like the next big thing that we didn't even know about in 2014 was about to be oat milk kind of thing, you know? Right. So, and like, that's not going to turn into cheese. That's not going to turn into real yogurt or ice cream or many of the things that milk can turn into. And so we looked at it from a more like chemistry perspective, rather than thinking cows are imbued with some kind of magic. We figured, well, there's some kind of molecule, there's some component in milk that's giving it the ability to turn into different products. So why don't we just figure out a way to make that thing, that component um, without animals? How hard can it be? Right. We were we were 22. And. You know, it, it turned out that it was actually a pretty straightforward answer because the dairy industry has already been in the business of valorizing and separating milk into its components, kind of like the petroleum industry, actually, oh, for, for like a century. Right. Okay. They had already found all the ways that that milk's functionality can be stretched and applied in different ways, which is part of why it's so challenging to be to either you know be giving up dairy or to have a dairy allergy because it's everywhere. It's so ubiquitous. And exactly. what, what we found is that the whey protein found in milk is really the lion's share of that functionality. And it was pretty simple from there to say, you know, what's the, what's the most scalable, what's the most realistic way to make a protein without an animal? And the world had already been doing that, again, uh, using fermentation. So we, we applied the same concept to a new, uh, a new kind of field, and uh, a lot has happened since then. Yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting because, as, as you said, there was a proliferation of plant-based. And so I think when people think dairy, the brain automatically goes to um, the plant-based milks, you know, almond milk, soy milk, oat milk, as you said. Right. Um, but for, for what you guys are doing, there are also um, very incredible health and environmental benefits. Um, so can you touch on some of those and, and you know, how, how your product helps unlock that um, in a new way? Absolutely. So let me, let me start with the environmental because I think it's a little bit more uh, straightforward for people to understand because we actually did a... Um, ISO conforming life cycle assessment to quantify. We obviously had a hunch, but we wanted to prove that, you know, if you make a kilogram of, of milk protein using fermentation, it could actually be less impactful than the same kilogram obtained from milk. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the ISO compliant study found that, that to be the case. So, you know, making protein using fermentation rather than getting it from cow's milk results in up to 99% less water usage, up to 97% less greenhouse gas emissions and up to 60% less energy. Um, and these were with fairly conservative um, kind of assumptions going into it as well. So we were really thrilled with this result. And it's actually turned into one of the major selling points when we talk to some of the largest food and beverage companies in the world who look at this now, not only as like a way to make a, a better kind of um, totally animal-free product that might appeal to that vegan demographic or the, uh, the demographic that might be looking to avoid animal products, but the reality is because it's so much uh, less impactful from an environmental ESG perspective, you could even supplement existing products with this protein and start to move the dairy industry as a whole in a more sustainable direction over time, which I think is really powerful as we look at some of the 2030, 2050 objectives that these companies have. And I imagine for these companies, because they have their own objectives um, on the ESG side, that this this can also help them with their own their own individual objectives in terms of um, reducing ga greenhouse gas emissions and things like that as, as, as your product can help take the place of some of those um, higher producing alternatives. Exactly right. So that, that's an area where we actually find companies are courting us 
because they know. And now, now that we're sort of getting deeper into the decade, um, 2030 doesn't feel maybe as far away as it did in 2019, right? <laughs> True. Um, and so they're they're really kind of coming after us in a great way of like we we want to take this seriously. Can you guys help? And and of course we're happy to. I think that's exactly exactly why we are doing what we're doing. And it's it's great to see that um, that interest is mirrored on the other side of the table. Wonderful. Now you've mentioned precision fermentation already in our conversation, um, but just for the the for the, the the people out there who aren't as familiar with it, can you just explain your production process sort of in layman's terms? Um, yeah. And, and like from beginning through to where your product is 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 ready? Yeah. So one of the ways I like to think about it, so first of all, I'll, I'll just kind of tell you what to picture and then we can go into the biology a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So the the actual production takes place in kind of big stainless steel tanks. So you can sort of picture a brewery, like the way that you would see big stainless steel tanks making beer or making wine. Um, it's a very, very similar kind of fermentation tank where we're basically combining like sugar and microflora. So microflora is anything like a bacteria, yeast, uh, algae, fungi, little tiny microorganisms. Mm-hmm. We just say microflora because the industry and the, the process as a whole is kind of agnostic to what that little critter is. Uh, we happen to use fungi, but we know a lot of other companies in the space use bacteria or use algae, mm-hmm. um, use yeast, et cetera. So these um, these microflora basically eat the sugar, and inside of their tiny micro, you know, single-celled little bodies, they convert that sugar into protein. Mm-hmm. Now we've given them the instruction of which protein to produce. They are naturally really good at making enzymes, which is why the enzyme industry has been around for fifty years, because they basically just took these creatures that were already converting sugar into enzyme and turned it into a process. They said, "Hey, now we can make a supply chain for amylase or or lipase or rennet." What Perfect Day has done is started to uh, apply the more modern uh, biology techniques to actually basically c- turn, that, turn that production into kind of a cassette, if you will. There's, there's a way that we can say, keep everything that you're doing um, exactly how you've been doing it, uh, little microbe, but change the actual protein you're making from amylase or, or whatever into this particular milk protein. And that's how the uh, the organism gets the instruction from us to basically know how to convert sugar into an actual cow protein, or in some cases, an actual human protein. Like when we're making um, alpha lactalbumin for uh, for infant formula, it's actually mm-hmm. a literal human protein, but it's made using um, a you know, non human, non animal organism in a fermentation tank. So that's that's sort of how they produce it. And then I think the the key that I think separates precision fermentation from regular old fermentation is that once we have a, a key protein made in a fermentation tank, uh, the most important thing to do from there is obviously to separate it out and make sure that it's extremely high purity. Right. So we do that the same way the dairy industry has already purified whey protein from milk for several decades, which is basically just a series of filters. You know, It's a little bit more advanced than a coffee filter, but it's basically a filter um, that kind of we, we put them through a couple of different ones at different uh, pore sizes. And then a spray dryer, which is also exactly what the dairy industry uses. And that's key for us because that means at the end of the process, we end up with a powder that has the exact same like powder characteristics that the dairy industry expects. Right. It has the same fluffiness. It has the same density, you know, those kinds of things. Excellent. So um, as you're as you're expanding the, your your business and expanding your role, what are the biggest challenges you face to unlocks? Um, because that seems to be one of the challenges for a lot of companies that are sort of in the startup space. So what is it that you need to be able to accelerate growth? Yeah, it, it is the challenge because as I've, I've mentioned that the, the infrastructure and the process have been around for a while, 
But the scale of the protein industry is so much more vast than the amount of demand there is for like enzymes or something, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you think about it, so one example I mentioned a couple of times, but I'll I'll share a little more on is rennet. That's probably the first um, uh, the first enzyme to be produced that was a little bit of a custom cassette that was done back in the '80s. And rennet is used to make cheese. So anyone who's followed a like a home make your own mozzarella cheese or whatever, yeah, um, they're they're going to be using a little packet of rennet, which is almost certainly uh, fermentation derived. I think about ninety five plus percent of the Rennet in the world is now non-animal derived. It used to come from the, the uh, stomachs of baby calves. Okay. So, so in the case of like rennet, right, you're putting a teeny tiny amount of it in, in your uh, milk to make it into cheese. Whereas if you think about it, the actual amount of protein that'll be in that cheese is so much more. Right. And our job is to actually create the core macronutrient. So there's not enough capacity out there. The, the infrastructure, you know, needs to scale, which I think makes sense. I mean, how many data centers were there 25 years ago, right? Right. Um, infrastructure needs to be built, or how many, you know, solar uh, plants and, and that kind of. So, but we're at that stage now as an industry, or certainly Perfect Day is at that stage. So, we went through a couple stages of the journey where there was a, a gap in pilot scale, um, you know, the like intermediate scales that you bring your process to before you you commit to commercializing. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually ended up acquiring a, a facility that that we now offer services to other companies through it's called nth bio but when we bought it it was called sbf and um and so we every step of the way i think the point is we're trying to solve these hurdles and then make them available for the other folks in the uh in the industry that are coming up behind us because we know it's a major gap and we want to make sure that the, the rising tide lifts all the boats so with pilots sort of starting to get a little bit more available mm-hmm. we um we're now setting our sights on large-scale manufacturing which is obviously you know extremely time consuming and 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 expensive um but but so exciting that we're just within a few short years of our first few full scale full owned manufacturing plants coming online um and getting to a real you know multi tens of thousand ton per year scale that's amazing um so so you've mentioned um throughout the conversation you've talked about whey in particular are there other types of proteins or products that you're focused on or do you have something else kind of in sight for what's coming next yeah, we have a couple of different dairy proteins that are in our our pipeline right now that are um, ones that we started development on pretty quickly after the the first whey protein. Mm-hmm. But we also are starting to branch out in in uh, more different ways. But typically now the the proteins that we're making that are maybe a little bit uh, left field compared to the core dairy proteins, we tend to be approaching those products in more of a collaborative way with other companies ah. because we realize that. You know, we have so much of a technology head start and so much of the key IP that we want to make sure other companies have access to it as well. And that, you know, the industry as a whole can become more resilient, if that makes sense, than they're just being kind of one one group out there uh, commercializing new ingredients. So um, that's, again, what we're doing through our Nth Biology um, sort of biotech as a service platform. Um, so with some of our customers, we're looking at materials, proteins. There's some really, really interesting stuff that's coming out that's probably just a, a few years away from commercializing, where anything we see in nature that that conveys an interesting or useful property, I'll give you some examples in a second, yeah. we can now turn into, into low-cost, high-scale uh, supply chains, which is really exciting. So a couple that I'll, I'll share is like, there's a, um, there's a protein that is about 1,500 times as sweet as sugar and is literally made out of protein. So you, you obviously don't need to use a very large amount of it. So this, right. this one is less of a core macronutrient in that way, but it's 
it blows every other alternative sweetener out of out of the water because it doesn't have any of the sort of you know bitterness or off flavors that alternative sweeteners tend to have. Right. And it digests like protein. It's literally protein. So any of the things that we've started reading about where um, the alternative sweeteners might have deleterious effects on the gut microbiome or like on the digestive tract, that's a non-issue here because it's literally protein. So really, really cool. We're excited for that one to come out. And then an example of a material is there's a company that that, um, we're, uh, we're really excited about that found a protein that like helps grasshoppers jump super high. And <laughs> I think their 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 thinking is, hey, what if we put that protein in like sneakers, right? Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> right? Yeah. So really, really cool stuff on the horizon and all sort of powered by this core technology that that lets you make a lot of stuff in a sustainable way at a low cost. I think that's amazing. And I and I I, I like the idea that you're you're working with others so that you're not also you're also not splitting your attention um, exactly. of your of what your core product is too. So you're you're able to tap into these opportunities but still keep pushing forward on on what's made Perfect Day so famous so far. Exactly. Um so let's talk a little bit about just the science. I mean, since since you first arrived on the scene, you know, science it's it seems to be evolving faster and faster every year as we're unlocking new media or we're unlocking new opportunities. What do you find most exciting about the environment today? Well, I, th- I think from my perspective, obviously the science has, has come a long way, but in, in ways that probably sound incremental to a, a podcast audience, right? It's like <laughs> okay. the, the, the efficiency, the conversion ratio has, has gone from some number to, to twice that number. But I think what, what's more interesting to me is that there has always been, in, in my view, a bigger gap on the um, on the public or communications or marketing side of this of, of this thing that we're doing than the science itself. Okay. Like I, you know, even in 2023, I I um ha- have to kind of explain what enzymes are or what amino acid, you know, how how citric acid is made. And I think what's what's interesting to me is to watch how much easier it's getting for people to sort of jump to getting why we're doing what we're doing and to a certain extent how we're doing what we're doing to the point where you know, governments, regulators get it um, and are in some cases approaching us. Like you might have seen the um, the massive announcements made by the Biden administration in Q4 last year, uh, Q3, Q4, with like huge biomanufacturing initiatives. Yes. Similar things are are happening in other geographies as well, where not only do not only do governments get it, but they've announced in some cases massive projects to actually invest in the infrastructure that'll that'll help get us there. Um, so that's really cool. And then being able to see the proliferation, like I mentioned, of other startups that are following in our footsteps and trying to create their own ingredient or their own sort of new, kinder, greener future through fermentation. One thing I wanted to mention is we we just recently announced starting the Precision Fermentation Alliance. So oh, yeah. we and nine other companies uh, came together and have started to form an organization to better represent ourselves and each other. Uh, as a coalition, which is really powerful and just shows you how far things have come since we were being laughed out of rooms in 2014. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Um, and I find it's interesting where more and more um, of just the general public are becoming aware of some of these unique technologies and the the willingness to try and to embrace them um, just seems to be growing every year. Um, so that's that's really exciting to see from a consumer perspective, just that knowledge and understanding and willingness. So that when more and more products come to market, I, eventually there will be a day where people 
won't care. <laughs> It'll be completely, completely agnostic. Exactly. Um, we get we get little glimpses of that moment when people try some of our products and and don't get why it's a big deal because it tastes exactly like the traditional thing. So right. we had that with our ice cream. We've had that with when we show people egg egg and animal free chocolate co- chocolate chip cookies that we make here in the office, and they're like, "Cool, thanks for the free cookie." I don't uh-huh. get it. You know, which is great. We we love being remarkably unremarkable in that way. Well, actually, that's a great segue into into another topic I wanted to touch on with you. Um, and and that's that you've got a a slightly different business model than some of the other players in the alternative protein or cultivated space. And can you talk to us about your decision to partner with brands to bring your products to market instead of launching your own branded products? Um, and, yeah. and what some of those benefits are for having a business, a B2B type focus? Well, absolutely. And I think when we started the company, we didn't know that much about the food industry. Honestly, we were coming more from the biology and, and chemistry side of things. So it was a couple of years in when we we realized that we were getting so many inquiries from um, big and small food companies who were saying, I want to launch something like this. Can I use your ingredient? Because what we didn't realize um, or didn't appreciate is that every food company like in the world basically is in the business of procuring raw materials, raw ingredients and making their food, right? That's, right. that's how it works. And so they're already buying in some cases whey protein from, from uh, dairy producers. They're already buying different slices and dices of milk. Um, and so from their perspective, they were like, cool, now there's an animal-free variant of this milk ingredient that I've been buying. Let me, let me get my hands on it. And, and then they contact us and we're like, well, but we're just going to be one brand. It very quickly uh, became clear that that wasn't going to be the way to maximize impact. Mm-hmm. So just a couple of years in, I think like a year and a half, two years into uh, our, our journey in 2016, we announced a switch to B2B and we're so glad we did. Um, like I mentioned before, uh, all these companies, ESG initiatives, all the excitement, all the explosion of interest that's happening in this space, I think is only possible because it's B2B versus it, what were the odds really that a startup was going to create like something that rivals Unilever within right. five or 10 years? It's just not going to happen. And even if it did, it would be missing the point because shouldn't we be trying to help these big companies uh, steer their ship in a more sustainable direction, not just compete with them? Well, and that 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 actually may get you to a a, a much bigger net environmental impact than if you exactly. had gone the route all, all on your own. So, so do you think investors, when they're when they're looking at you, and, and we'll touch a, a little bit more on this in, in a minute, but should they view you more like an ingredient company than a consumer branded company? Yeah, absolutely. I mean that that is very much our core. So, I I think uh, the best analogy, or certainly what we used uh, in the last couple of years, is like Intel, right? So the reason that I think it's particularly salient, obviously everyone knows Intel inside. So there's sort of a, Mm -hmm. uh, there's a consumer awareness of this company and what their IP does, even though you're not really buying an Intel product. Right. Um, You're you're buying something from some other OEM. And the other interesting thing about Intel is that early on, they did have their own end product business, which is kind of what we did as well to help move things faster and to help show the food companies of the world like how we talked about it, how we used the ingredients, what was possible with the best formulations our chefs could do. We launched a, a couple of our own consumer brands and actually acquired one as well called Cool House. And the goal with, with the acquisition was to take a brand that was already producing traditional animal dairy mm-hmm. and start to move it over to animal free and sort of prove that consumers were not only unbothered, but actually were jazzed about it, which we were able to show, which was really cool. But I think like Intel, you know, now I don't think Intel has a consumer business at all. For us, I don't think it's quite as clear cut because it, it is still really fun and really valuable. 
not only to be able to continue showing what's possible, but to have that relationship with retailers. Yeah. I think all of that is still really helpful. So we love having that consumer arm of the business, but the core for us is always going to be the ingredient innovation and uh, the core biology that we can use not only for our own ingredients, but for our partners. Makes a lot of sense. And one area that that doesn't get uh, talked about quite as much, I think, in, in this is just the, the, is the supply chain. And so can you talk about, um, you know, how you envision, you know, supply chains, you know, that when you talk about food production, you know, how companies like yours can help change that overall total food supply chain and why that's important for people to understand. So today, companies that are buying dairy ingredients are, are getting something that in some cases has been shipped halfway around the world. I mean, when right. we talk to, for example, folks in the Middle East, um, I think a lot of people uh, <laughs> might know this story, but a couple of years ago, or to, for all I know, it, it still happens. There was a, a jumbo jet full of cows that was flown into Qatar kind of thing. And, you know, it, it's hard to imagine that that makes economic sense or right. certainly any other kind of sense. And so when you look at, at regions of the world that today aren't really able, you know, you, these aren't the rolling hills of Ireland or New Zealand or something, <laughs> but there's a huge appetite for milk and more importantly, a huge need for protein and nutrition. Right. So not only in regions that are already like that, but in changing climate of the future where it's not necessarily clear where cows can be kept the happiest or if it'll take a lot of air conditioning for all the cows in every country at some point. Whereas you can imagine a fermentation tank is a much more controlled environment and a much more closed loop system to where not only is it easier to um, actually succeed in producing the, the product, but all of the all of the inputs are more focused on the product versus like methane is literal carbon that's going into the atmosphere. We can we can check two boxes by having that by having more efficient conversion of uh, of raw raw input into the protein and also not have more pollution going into the outside world. And, and even if even if there is something produced, it's all a closed system. And so every right. milligram of something you don't want can be captured. Right. Yeah. I think I think one of the most exciting parts of this to me is that you can localize production in in areas where it's needed long term. And so, you know, when you think about the pandemic or you thought about when the, the Panama Canal was closed. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, like the backlog impact that has on global transportation and infrastructure of, of the supply chain is just mind boggling. So to me, one of the most exciting things is just the fact that that whole supply chain may be completely reinvented. Um, as we move forward into the future, absolutely. So let's talk about um, you know uh, you know you you talked about this you know you were young when you were starting this company you had all the energy. Do you think that there's greater buy-in from specific consumer segments to your value proposition? Yeah, or I, I, is this um, something that 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 will appeal to everybody? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up because I, I did want to share we we had actually done uh, uh, earlier this year published an extensive piece of consumer research that we did with the Hartman Group and Cargill to try to quantify, similar to how we wanted to quantify the environmental side of things, we wanted to quantify how, how and to whom this uh, most appeals. And yeah. so it was really, really exciting. I think this wouldn't have been the case five or certainly nine years ago, but we found that when we share the benefits of precision fermentation, um, about 40% of adult consumers in the US, uh, or about 90 million adults, as of right now, are ready to go, ready to purchase products made with this technology, excited nice. about it, see the benefits. And when you cut that data along generational lines, mm -hmm. it's even more the case. So I think millennials and Gen Z, it's more than 80% um, who would 
view themselves as likely to purchase products made with our technology. And in fact, for those that are interested in the benefits of precision fermentation, there's a willingness to pay uh, at least 10% more. So that premium and that, that higher value of being able to make something that doesn't compromise on taste and the experience and the nutrition, it you know, conveys a, a 10% premium and people are kind of willing to, uh, to pay that, which is huge. That's phenomenal. And, and those generations also influence older generations, right? So, um, you know, so, so as, as, you know, millennials have a lot of spending power as Gen Z grows into their spending power. Um, that's when like the Gen Xers like myself you know, become influenced <laughs> because, you know, these products show up at, you know, birthday parties or, you know, in your, in your day-to-day consumption. So it's, it's something that I think can grow from the, the base out. So, you know, I guess the, the last question I have for you um, is that, you know, Perfect Day has been really successful at raising capital to grow your business. Um, so can you just give us a hint on what's on the horizon to help support your future growth? So uh, as I kind of alluded to, we're pretty darn close to getting off the startup runway and, and being at that kind of self-sufficient profitability finish line. But there is still some work we want to do on really investing in the infrastructure that'll unlock this next chapter of growth. Yeah. So what what we want to get to is a scenario where, like where I think renewable energy is today, it's a scenario where lenders and more sort of traditional infrastructure investors just sort of get that the that the technology is ready, it's de-risked, that the market and commercial demand is ready, it's de-risked, and that there's a robust enough kind of ecosystem that can use these assets to where it's comfortable to lend at, at um, the kind of rates that you see now in energy and weren't the case maybe 10, 15 years ago. So I think that that requires us playing a an active role in really shepherding the first, you know, one one or two manufacturing plants uh, to get off the ground, so that we can hopefully unlock that scenario where it's a lot more cookie cutter uh, in the future. So I think, you know, not to be too coy, but I think there there's probably more that we'll raise, but uh, we'll share more updates when when there are updates. And for now, I think we're we're also just really focused on scaling the business. And I think it would be great to keep you posted when we we have some great partnerships to announce in the next few months. We have one of the largest CPG brands uh, in the in the country, if not the world, that we're we're going to be partnering with, and uh, and we'll have some concrete updates on the manufacturing and uh, capacity unlock and the ge- geography expansion as well in the next couple of months. So uh, a lot coming. I that I cannot wait to hear what you've got in store. Ryan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, It's been a wonderful conversation, and we wish you and Perfect Day all the best. Thank you very much. Thanks.